Well, Rick, thanks, uh, thanks again for making the drive. 500 miles yesterday to come be with us this morning to worship and hear me preach. That means a lot. It really does. But since you were gone last week, and for those of you who weren't here, last week we talked about um, the transfiguration and how Jesus up on that mountain showed Peter, James, and John his true nature, you know, who he really was, right? The Son of God as he was being transfigured in his glory. And, and we heard or we read that they'd heard an, the audible voice of God. And he said, this is my son whom I love and am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Right. Hopefully we reflected on that this past week. But this morning, let's do that. Let's let's continue listening to Jesus this morning. And instead of using mountains as a backdrop like we did last week, let's use the temple. Let's use the temple because going through the old pictures of, of Tina and Olivia's trip in Israel, I always loved this picture of them sitting on the steps of the temple overlooking the Mount of Olives. And Tina said she just had such an experience there, an awestruck moment that maybe, quite possibly, Jesus walked up those very steps into the temple. It was amazing. So let's use the temple as a, as a backdrop for today's study that we're going to be doing in John chapter 8, in case you want to hold that in readiness, and then eventually get to Colossians. The temple. What's, the temple in Jesus' day was humongous. It was absolutely the center of activity for a Jew in Jesus' day. It was the epicenter of their life, of their worship, of their sacrificial system, of where they went to to learn to be taught from the Pharisees and the teacher of the law. It was it was you know pilgrimage. Jews made pilgrimages to the temple during festivals, festivals like Passover or the Feast of Weeks. Or the festival of the booths. These were times when Jerusalem and the temple were just bursting with activity. And as you can see, it was quite large. It was over 30 acres in size. Approximately that would fit on a 30-acre piece of land. Enormous. And in the middle there, you see the, the temple itself on the Temple Mount is the big building in the middle there. That's the Holy of Holies where the high priest would enter once a year once a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. And as they leave the Holy of Holies in the first little courtyard, that was called the priest's courtyard. That's where you would see animals staged, lined up, ready to be put to the slaughtering tables that were there in that courtyard, to be burnt on the altar again for the sins of the people. And as they left that first little courtyard from the Holy of Holies out, that was the the women's courtyard. That was the farthest place, if you were a female Jewish person, that's the farthest place that you could go into that area of the temple. But beyond that, look at that huge area around it. That's the Gentile courtyard. And that's where people met. There was activity. There was hustle and bustle. Jews, Gentiles both passing each other, walking around, kids probably running, playing tag, like they do at our church, right? Running around here and chasing them. Kids... People walking through that Gentile courtyard to the priest's courtyard with their animals, right? To lay, to lay the sac- to, to, to give to the priest so they would be sacrificed. So they lay it at the altar and then they can leave their sin there and walk back through the Gentile courtyard out of the temple, cleansed, restored. This was so important to the Jewish believer. Now the wall to the, to the left of this picture is a southern wall. There's a little better picture of it next the southern wall, that southern wall was huge, right? It alone was over 900 feet long. That is like if we left the church parking lot and took a left and you drive down about two-tenths of a mile to where Brad and Anna live actually on South Park Drive. So do that. When you go home, go this way to that first road on your right. That's as long, if that's the way you go, um, that's as long as just this southern wall. And I mention that southern wall because... That's where most people entered. See those wide steps right there that most people would walk up those wide steps into the southern wall, make their through the southern gates, make their way up through the temple into the Gentile courtyard. And that's where the setting is for what we're going to study today. There in the temple, in the Gentile courtyard, where Jesus goes early in the morning to teach people. And the Pharisees have something in store for him. And it's a story about the woman who is caught in adultery. 
And we know this end of this story, but let's slow down a little bit today and let's read it verse by verse and really get a feel for what's going on. So let's look at John chapter 8, starting at verse 2, the story of the woman caught in adultery. John 8, 2. At dawn, he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So it's early in the morning. It's dawn. Jesus is an early riser. Right. And and I reflected back when I read this back to a study on Wednesday nights was doing Rick around the ping pong table about Joshua. And often we read about Joshua. It said early in the morning, Joshua did this or early in the morning, Joshua went to do this. And it seems like when there's something important to attend to. Jesus and Joshua, at least those guys, hopefully us, too, got early in the morning to go get it done. And what what was his important thing to do to teach? Jesus went to the temple to teach. That was his mission. Right. He wanted to go teach the people. And what's fascinating about this is that even early in the morning, what's it say? That people gathered around him. They wanted to hear Jesus. They were maybe there waiting for Jesus to hopefully appear. Hey, that's Jesus. It's early in the morning. It's dawn. I'm going to gather around him. I'm going to go because he was special. Because he had something that they wanted to hear. So it's dawn. The people gather around Jesus. He begins to teach them. Verses 3 and 4. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Let's read this again. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman. Stop. Okay? Caught in the act of adultery. When, when did they catch her? Here's Jesus. It's dawn. Did they catch her just five minutes ago? No. This, this shows us that this was their evil scheme, their wicked plan to try to trap Jesus. This poor woman was going to be used as a pawn, as a tool in this, right? They might have caught her last night, two nights ago, held her, held her just for this purpose because they were going to finally trick Jesus. They tried before, right? And Jesus always, always with truth, with the word, told, you know, never was trapped. They never succeeded in trapping him from separating Jesus from the people who are starting to believe him. But, oh, they had to think this time. They had to think this time we are going to get him. We are going to set this up. We're going to set the stage. We're going to get a woman caught in adultery, possibly nights ago, save up for just this moment at the temple that we just saw to nail, to nail Jesus. Go ahead and put that back up there, Chris, if you don't mind. So not only did they catch her, but they made her stand before the group. Front and center. Public spectacle. Jesus is teaching people they're going to parade her up, no regard for the woman in this case, parade her right in front of everybody, and they're going to make a big deal about it. They've planned this out so perfect. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She is not rumored to be an adulteress. She is caught. We got her. She is guilty. Caught in the act of adultery. And it's adultery, right? It's one of the big ones. It's one of those... Couple from the Ten Commandments that if we said the name off the Ten Commandments, you'd probably think, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, it's right there. It's a big one. This is serious. This woman's life is at stake here. I mean, this is serious stuff. What a plan that they have schemed up to try to trap Jesus. Let's move on, please. John chapter 8, 5 and 6. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? Jesus, what do you say? Are you going to say that you're greater than Moses and we shouldn't stone her? Is that what you're going to say? Jesus, are you greater than Moses? Are they're questioning here, are you greater than the law, than the law Moses gave us? Jesus, are you going to say you're greater than the law? Than this temple that was built around the law, the sacrificial system? Look around where we are, Jesus. Are you going to say that you are greater than that? Greater than those animal sacrifices we hear just right over there in the priest's courtyard? The squealing, the dying of animals. Are you going to say you're greater than all that? Jesus, what are you going to say? Jesus, what do you say? 
can you sense, can you sense the drama here? I bet if we were early Jews, right, and we went there to hear Jesus talk that morning, and then this happens in front of us, I mean, we'd be standing there like, what is the drama? You could probably hear a pin drop, right? What was, what's he going to say? This trap they thought was so perfect. John 8, 6 through 8. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What did he write? Nobody really knows uh, what he wrote. Was there symbolism in that? Maybe. Quite possibly. It's kind of, kind of cool to think about and maybe think about it later this week. Because we read in Exodus 31:18, talking about the Lord and Moses. He gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tablets of testimony. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So was there some neat symbolism here that Jesus stoops down and writes on a hard stone temple floor surface with his finger? Maybe. Maybe, but that's not what we're focused on this morning. That's something to ponder later. What I, what, I, what I thought we'd focus on is with one sentence, he defuses this entire situation. With one sentence. If any of you, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone on her. Throw a stone at her. This carefully planned out sentence. One sentence and Jesus defuses it. The temple, the perfect place where they thought they could get him is now going to backfire on them. Because what happens with that sentence? The Pharisee, with a stone in his hand, ready to throw it at the woman caught in adultery, as Jesus pauses again, he thinks about what he just said there, right? And he possibly looks up and looks around. He's in the temple. Maybe he looks at those southern stairs that we saw, right? And he thinks about himself as a little Jewish boy with his father, walking up those southern steps so many times with an animal. I did nothing to him, but that animal that he had to go give to the priests to be killed for his sin. And he walked away clean. Maybe they're thinking of that. Maybe he's thinking about now as an adult how many times he's done that. And people have seen him do that. How could he throw a stone at her when he knows that he himself is a sinner? Jesus makes them look inside and reflect that they are a sinner just like she is. John 8 through 10. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, leave your life of sin. The pawn in this account the tool, the object, the woman who they had no regard for whatsoever, who that very day thought that she was going to be killed, right? She thought she was going to pay for this sin of adultery with her life, is standing in the temple alone with Jesus, you know, the Son of God, the very Lamb of God. Can you imagine that? And he's the only one there who was sinless, who could have thrown a stone at her, and he had no stone in his hand. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't grab a stone and stone her. And he's the one that could. Instead, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. You are guilty. We've established that. You were caught. But I'm not going to condemn you either. I'm not going to make you pay for it. I'm not going to make you pay for that sin either. Go. And sin no more. What a picture. What a picture of grace. What a picture of truth. What a picture of, of irony in a way. Right? I mean, you think about this. They were trying to trick the Son of God in his own house. Right? In the, they were trying to trick the Holy One in the holy place. Kind of, kind of humorous when you think. I mean, you, you can almost wonder if John, after the whole picture and gospel... All the revelations of Christ was made to him. He fully understand what Jesus did when he's writing this. Is he kind of chuckling in a way? <laughs> Saying they tried to trick Jesus in his own house. But the picture of grace 
truth here is amazing. I mean, do you think, do you think that this woman's life was changed forever? You know, I bet it was. I bet there wasn't a day that went by that she didn't think about her encounter with Jesus. Do you think that this woman rushed right back into an adulterous relationship? I don't. I don't think she would have done that. Sure, I'm not saying she was sinless, but I don't think she just ran right back to adultery. I think this encounter with Jesus had to have changed her. This forgiveness that he brings, that we are not condemned when we're in Christ. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And we need to always have that impact us as well every time we hear it, right? We should think about this adulterous woman and Jesus not condemning her because we are not any better than her. And we have sin in our lives too. And he offers that same forgiveness to us, especially when we think about where we were prior to Christ. Let's look at that in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, reread, we read, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope, Held out in the gospel. I kept reading this verse, and the word that popped out at me over and over was alienated. That once I, we, outside of Christ, were alienated from God? Alienated? I mean, what is that? That his home was not my home? We're alienated? That's what, it, if there were such things as, as, as aliens from outer space. An alien from outer space lands on earth. He's an alien. Why? Because his home is not here. His home is out there somewhere. Illegal aliens come into our country. They're not citizens of the United States. They're an alien because this is not their rightful home. And I was alienated from God? His home was not my, my home anymore. Why? Why were we alienated from God? Because we're enemies. In our minds, because of our evil behavior, we're enemies of God. How many people in the United States do you think we would poll right now and say, Hello, are, are you an enemy of God? Non-Christians, are you an enemy of God? They, no, we're not an enemy of God. We have an understanding, right? That's not what the Bible says here. The Bible says that we were enemies to God because of our evil behavior. It's all of what we have done to cause this alienation, this separation. All of, every one of us, ever since Adam, right? Ever since Adam first said, my will be done, not yours. I know you said don't eat of this tree, but I'm going for it. I'm reaching for it. I want to do what I want to do. Ever since that, every single one of us has that in us. And we constantly have to suppress it. But we lose the battle sometimes. We get deceived. We get defeated. And we sin. And when we sin, we become an enemy of God because of our evil behavior. Enemies. I mean, I had an enemy once back in grade school. I think it was fifth grade. His name was Bobby. Bobby was my enemy. I'm not going to give you his last name because just in case he runs across this on the web. Um, Bobby was my enemy. And Bobby was my enemy because he picked on me and my friend at recess. Routinely, until one day I just decided, that's enough. Bobby, let's meet after school at Dewey Park and we're going to settle this. So we met after school at Dewey Park, and yeah, I like to think I got the better of him that day. I like to think that I was the clear winner of our little wrestling match. At least that's how I remembered anyway. But Bobby was my enemy, and you know what? I could handle an enemy like Bobby, but God and the Creator. Is your enemy before Christ? Before we are now reconciled by Christ? Reconciliation, reconciled? You know, when two enemies are at war, at tension, brought together, reconciled, peace. You know, I can't go, I can't function when there's a problem in my relationship with Tina. I can't even go, when there's tension there, when we're, for some reason, probably something I've said, probably something I've done, <laughs> When there's that tension there, right, I, it bugs me. I, 
I can't go to work and drive around and go through life like nothing's going on because I feel it. I feel, and I have to go get reconciled with her. I've got to go put things right. I've got to go make peace. And it's amazing that that's what Christ does for us. When he offers us his forgiveness and says, I paid it all, you're not condemned either. He reconciles us to God through his death. That's what it took through his death. Never let that get stale. Never always think of the gospel message with new and fresh eyes. Because his death is what did it. And this is Jesus that we talked about last week. This is the one who spoke, right, in our little earth we talked about, spinning through space a thousand miles. He spoke and it was created. And that's the one that died so we could be reconciled. I mean, how did did that even go down? I mean, it was before there was nothing Jesus is there with God and Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and there's nothing out there, and they make a decision to create. They make a decision to create man in their image who could also make decisions and be creative and have feelings, be happy, be sad, think, reason. Let's create man in our image. But if we do that and create him like that, he might give in to the flesh and be deceived. And sin that would make him an enemy of ours. That would alienate him. His home would not be with us anymore. What are we going to do then? Well, maybe innocent blood would cover the death penalty of sin. Not innocent blood of animals. It might do it for a while, but it would have to be pure Holy, majestic, sinless blood that would cover their sin, their death sentence. And they're thinking about creation. And Jesus stands up and says, I'll do it. I will do it. I will leave this, the glories of heaven, and I will go to earth. And I'll become one of them. And I'll let them hang me to that cross. And I'll bleed for them. My innocent blood will cover their sin. It's amazing. The gospel message should never get stale when you read a passage like this. That he can now present us holy in his sight. That somehow through that cross, that somehow through that, it's like we were switched. Somehow that all of my sin, and there's a lot of it, right? All of it. And all of your sin, and there's a lot of it. All of it was gathered up and just heaped up and just placed right on Jesus on the cross. And all of his perfectness and glory and righteousness was just heaped off of Jesus and placed right on me. And now he presents me holy, without blemish, free from accusation that that the Father, when I go before him someday, Jesus says, Father, don't see Mark. We know what Mark has done. Don't look at Mark. See me. I'm going to present Mark as holy without blemish. When you're looking at Mark, look at, see me. He confessed me on earth. He believed in what I did for him. See me, Father. And he sees me as holy without blemish. That's what the death, that's what his death did. It's amazing. We should have the same reaction as, as the woman who was let who was guilty and didn't get condemned, it should change us forever. We should never stop thinking about that. If you continue in your faith. If. Big if statement there, right? If you continue in your faith. If. It's conditional. God's promise requires an action from us. Jesus paid it all. There's no no type of work we can do to earn salvation. But we have to believe it. And that's what faith is, right? That's my simplest definition of faith that I've always thought of is faith is believing what God says, period. My faith is believing the word of God. God said it. I believe it. That's my faith. We just read what God said. This this reconciliation process. If we continue in our faith, established and firm, that should be that should be my goal, right, as a youth minister, that kids we love, when they leave, when they go to college, their faith is so established and firm that they might go and get that roommate 
who start, ah, I don't believe in God, blah, 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 I'm going to do whatever I want. And their faith is so firm in their love for Jesus, right? And that should be your goal as a parent. It should be our goal together. It should be our goal that when they go to a family reunion and, 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 and possibly a, a relative they respect starts, so we, like I said earlier, we have this relationship, I don't really do this, not really that. Some whack theology that they realize it. They know the truth. They're firm, established in their love for Jesus. Not moved out from the hope we've held in the gospel. But, but let's just close with this. I hope that it's not only this for the kids. But I hope our faith, when we hear the gospel and it just touches our heart when we realize what happened, I hope our faith is strengthened. Our faith is rooted. And we too can stand firm, right? That will make a difference. That we're changed like that adulterous woman had to have been changed. That we're changed too. People see it. right? That we're willing to give stuff up. We're willing to not conform to the culture. We're willing to not enter into that water cooler talk of dirty things, right? We're willing to stand. We're willing to do things different. We're willing to do what God wants us to do because of this. Because we finally realize, we get this firmly in our heart. We get it. What Christ did, what he left, all so you could be reconciled. All so we could have this relationship with God restored because of our behavior. What a what a love. What an act of love for all of us. If we have faith, if we trust it, act upon it, and if we obey, that, that love then prompts us to do what Christ wants us to and obey. To be good kingdom builders for him. So let's reflect on exactly what Colossians tells us he did. Let's reflect on that as we sing a song. Trust and obey. That shows us. Sorry, Carol, I didn't give you the normal Rick. <laughs> the Rick. Fu- <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> but let's get ready to sing trust and obey. Praising God for his goodness. Praising God for this message this morning that we read right from Colossians about how Jesus reconciles us back to him. Amazing. Let's sing, let's stand and sing verses one and five.